We're now about 20 months into the COVID-19 pandemic and 20 months into the fight against the disinformation surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. We've gone from conspiracy theories about 5G towers causing coronavirus outbreaks to theories about microchips being distributed into people via vaccines. We've moved past hydroxychloroquine and on to ivermectin being touted as a miracle preventative medicine by those who don't believe in the actual preventative medicine. As long as this dis... As long as this disinformation is out there, we're going to keep talking about it and talking with the people who are fighting against it in what is starting to look increasingly like an uphill battle. My name is Eric Bullman. I'm the Communications Specialist at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. For the first time on Mindful, we have a repeat guest. Last season, we spoke with experts from the anti-disinformation initiative Science Up First about the details of and the reasons for the spread of dangerously false information online. A lot of that false information is different today than it was then, but the flow of it has not abated one bit. And so we're going to talk about it with two more experts from Science Up First. Although this time I've split them into two separate episodes. We'll speak with UBC psychiatrist Dr. Tyler Black next week. This week... I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast a returning champion. I'm Dr. Kishana Sankar. I have a doctorate degree in cellular and molecular biology from the University of Toronto. And I'm currently the science advisor as well as the community partnerships lead for a national anti-misinformation campaign online called Science Up First. I've also been doing a lot of vaccine education through kitchen table style Zoom session Q&As since the beginning of the year. Um, So it's been approximately 10 months of doing this um, on a volunteer basis. So this I'm doing even outside of my day job. And I constantly keep up to date with the information that's coming out around COVID and the vaccines. So I'm pretty well informed about it. No doubt. And I want actually, I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about these kitchen table type sessions. You explained to me earlier that sometimes it can be quite frustrating because you are dealing with the same questions over and over and over. What are some of the questions that you hear every single time you do one of these kitchen table Zoom meetings? Yeah, so with the some of the frequently asked questions or the questions that tend to come up a lot are around um, concerns about the vaccines and fertility. So whether or not the vaccines actually make people infertile, if they would affect um, people getting pregnant or their actual, you know, the actual pregnancy, um, people being worried about um, long-term effects um, from the vaccines, uh, which we know uh, typically, of course, um, usually if, if there are any type of long-term effects to see, we would see them within um, a few months but never beyond that. Um, And another one that we see a lot of is, you know, are the vaccines still effective against, for example, new variants coming up? So the variants like Delta, are they effective? Um, Is it even worth taking the vaccines if they're not going to continue to be effective? Um, And then more recently, of course, the question around immunity. So is natural immunity better than vaccine-induced immunity, which is another one that comes up recently as well. So talk to me about then, let's, let's take variants. Uh, now, I, I keep hearing about a new variant and now it's Delta and then it's Delta Plus. And I think of it the way 
that they used to advertise Ginsu knives back in the 2000s, right? Where they would have the Ginsu knife on TV and it would be super sharp and excellent. And then all of a sudden the next year they're advertising the Ginsu 2000 and it's a whole new company with a whole new name. And then the year after that, it's the super Ginsu 2000 and it's a whole new company with a whole new name. Uh, are we just gonna keep getting new variants all the time? And how long will these vaccines be useful against them? Yeah, that's a good question. So this actually ties in nicely with transmission. Uh, we get this question a lot as well as, you know, if you are vaccinated, can you still transmit? And the answer is yes, however, to a significant lesser degree. And that's because when it comes to viruses, viruses are constantly mutating. And a mutation in a virus then forms into or becomes a variant. And the way in which viruses work is they need a living host. So for example, if someone has COVID and they cough or sneeze, um, it gets transmitted and say another person picks it up, what happens is when that virus gets into your bodies, the viruses love to replicate themselves. Obviously they wanna make more of themselves and they do that by hijacking our system. Now, when they hijack our system and replicate themselves, the more chances they actually get to do this is the more chances they get to create mutations in their code. Now, mutations in their code can become advantageous to them and you develop uh, variants. So you get a variant of that original virus. Now, these variants can be advantageous in several ways. So Delta, for example, we know is more, uh, you know, more transmissible, more easily transmissible. And one of the ways it can do this is actually, you know, one of, due to the mutations that it has, it can actually get access into your cells even easier than the original virus, which means you get more virus getting into your cells and wreaking havoc. Um, and so that is how a virus uh, becomes, uh, or a variant forms uh, in a virus, how it can become more transmissible because of the advantages in the mutations. And so what we see, as I mentioned before, is the more chance a virus gets to transmit is the more chance we have variants forming, which means that if there are more people that are unvaccinated and they don't get vaccinated, we have higher chance for transmission, which means higher chance for more variants forming. So the longer we have, you know, uh, less vaccinations, the, the longer, the more time we have for more variant formation, which is, which is another reason why it's really important to get vaccinated, right? So vaccines really help in reducing transmission as much as people, you know, would sometimes say, oh, even though you're vaccinated, you can still transmit. Yes, but you transmit at a far lesser rate than someone who is unvaccinated. Another thing that we're hearing a lot about, or at least that I see a lot online, in my own social media feeds and the CPA social media feeds too is, well, vaccines have been proven to be ineffective because now we need a whole new shot. We have to have boosters. Therefore, why did I get the vaccine in the first place? I'm just not gonna do any of this. Can you explain the booster shot and why it's being given to a certain population right now and will it eventually come to all of us? I know people are worried uh, that getting, um thinking that getting a booster shot means that the vaccines are no longer working, but that's not the case. It's the, it's the fact that the vaccines actually continue to offer strong protection um, against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And we even have data as recent as a few days ago from British Columbia and Quebec that show that two doses of 
any of the COVID vaccines that we have uh, approved here in Canada, so Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca, they actually continue to give strong protection against infection after four months and even for the Delta variant. So the issue around boosters or the need for boosters within specific populations is that what happens is for those populations, so for example, in, uh, in the senior population or in those uh, who are immunocompromised, they would, they would also mount an immune response to the vaccines. However, the level of antibodies or the level of immune response that they would mount is less than the amount of the immune response that those of us without underlying conditions or who are younger would actually mount. So for that reason, they actually would need to get a booster shot to ensure that they increase their immune response, um, you know, a few months down the road, just to ensure that they have the antibodies that are available and necessary to fight off the infection. Now, when it comes to the rest of the population, like I said before, we know that the, um, you know, the vaccines are still effective for a certain length of time, and at least for this this moment in time, not everyone needs a booster shot, but there may be some time in the future where people would need to get a booster shot just because we know that immunity starts to wane in terms of the level of antibodies in our body. Now, I think what's really important for people to know though is that our immune system is not just made up of antibodies. Uh, we also have different types of cells. So we have, you know, some cells called B cells and we have some cells called T cells and they're also involved in for example, the B cells creating more antibodies. So they have a memory of what the virus looks like. And we have T cells and those cells actually kill off infected cells. So it's not just the antibodies. So even though antibodies start to wane a bit over time, we still have other cells in our bodies that help to you know, pretty much ramp up again and create those antibodies as well as kill off the infected cells. So these antibodies that we create through obtaining a vaccine are they as effective as natural immunity? I'm certain you're going to tell me no, because this is one of the things that everyone tries to, that all the, you know, anti-COVID folks try to push is that natural immunity is better. It's better to have had COVID uh, than to have gotten a vaccine. And as a secondary question, is there any disease in the world for which natural immunity is a better protection than a vaccine for that disease? Yeah, those are two great questions again. So when it comes to this debate of natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity, first of all, I want to say natural immunity is just basically getting immunity from an infection. Um, and so why it's better to get um, vaccine-induced immunity, uh, there are several reasons. So getting, an, getting immunity from an infection means you need to get the infection number one. So you need right. to be infected with SARS-CoV-2, right? And the problem with this, though, is that your response to this is unpredictable. You can end up having serious, you know, serious illness. So you can have serious disease uh, and end up in the hospital and potentially die. Now, with a vaccine, we know that the vaccines produce um, more, a more, far more predictable and safer response, immune response to um, to SARS-CoV-2 with far rarer side effects. Um, so when sort of comparing the two, you know, which would we rather, would you rather get infected by a virus and have, and be uncertain of what the outcome would be 
and, poten and potentially risking going into the hospital, going on a ventilator and potential death? Or would you rather a vaccine, which is a preventative measure, and you can actually more safely predict how your body would respond? Number one, you would get protection with the antibodies, yes. So you do get antibodies building up from getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. However, again, it's an unpredictable way of how our bodies would actually react and what outcomes would, would, ha would happen from it versus getting a vaccine, more predictable, it's safer, you have rarer side effects and you are, you know, you are protected from severe disease and death. So that's the main difference between the two. When it comes to any, any disease in the world, whether you know, it's getting it, um, it, it's better to get the disease or the infection versus the vaccine, none that I know of. Uh, once there is a vaccine available to you, uh, it's a preventative measure from, from you actually going through you know, hardships of getting a, a virus um, that can le land you in the hospital or kill you. Um, you know, who would not prefer to avoid that and just be vaccinated? So yeah, that, that's how I would answer that one. You mentioned the fertility, this fertility idea, right? That the vaccines are causing infertility and that that is a pervasive thing. I'm stunned that that one's lasted as long as it has, right? I think back to the beginning of the pandemic where everyone was telling you, or not everyone, but uh, there was a certain sect of conspiracy theorists that were uh, positing that 5G was one of the causes of COVID because they looked at the map and in the concentrations of high populated areas, that was where the 5G was and that's where most of the COVID was and the causation correlation thing. They figured 5G was causing it, but that was fairly easily and quickly done away with. I don't hear anything about 5G anymore, but this fertility thing seems to be persisting. And is there any evidence at all that any of the vaccines cause any sort of fertility problems yeah, this is another question that we get very often as well. And so um, I think one of the reasons behind it is, uh, you know, when it comes to reproduction and um, children, we get very emotional about it. Um, and I think it's that emotional link between knowing that we can reproduce and the fact that something may affect it um, is what is perhaps driving this particular concern and then fear in people, which is understandable. But what I'm here to say is no, we have no evidence or reason to suspect that the vaccines cause infertility. And so that's because we've actually seen, you know, there are many, many, many people who've been vaccinated at this point, millions of people have been vaccinated. And um, there've actually been studies that are have been happening um, after the fact. So when I say after the fact, I mean, uh, typically in clinical trials, we do not include pregnant women or children. Um, however, studies are done afterwards. And, you know, for example, there was a study of about 3,900 uh, people where they found no unexpected outcomes in pregnancy or infants due to the vaccination during pregnancy. So that was actually, you know, done looking at 3,900 pregnant people. Um, they found nothing there to, you know, to say that there were any issues due to vaccination that was 
that occurred during pregnancy. Um, however, I think what's important is that people realize that if you are pregnant, you're more likely to become severely ill from COVID-19. And another study recently showed that vaccines give significant protection against COVID without any increase in things like risk to risk of miscarriage, stillbirth, or preterm eclampsia. So you know, it's actually the vaccines are protective for you if you are pregnant versus you know getting COVID, um, which can land you in the hospital. And then there are two other pieces too that tend to come up with this fertility topic. So I know that there was another piece of misinformation floating around due to misinterpretation of a study uh, when it came to, you know, where does the mRNA and the mRNA vaccines concentrate after vaccination? And that actually just happens at the vaccination site. The mRNA is found there and right before it's removed from the body. Claims that it concentrates in the ovaries are false. So studies have found no change in the function of the ovary or the quality of your egg or implantation. Um, due to vaccination. And we also know, um, there's also no evidence that the vaccines um, affect male fertility either. There was another, another study looking at the effects of vaccination on sperm, and I found no change in the quality of sperm, the concentration, amount, or motility of sperm. But uh, two, study, two other studies actually found that the SARS-CoV-2 infection could actually impact sperm count and increase erectile dysfunction. So I think those are things that people you know, should really take into account when they're thinking about risks of getting COVID versus the COVID vaccine. A lot of the times where I've seen somebody trying to convince others on, online that this causes infertility, they reference something called, I, I don't know if you would pronounce it VAERS, but V-A-E-R-S, right? The Virus Adverse mm -hmm. Effect Reporting System. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what that is and whether it is credible as a scientific source. Yes, so VAERS is uh, the American reporting system that keeps track of side effects from vaccines. So for, or, or otherwise known as adverse, you know, adverse vaccine reactions. And in Canada, we have something similar. We have a system called um, CAFIS, which is the Canadian Adverse Events Following Immunization Surveillance System. So these systems, they are important. They're in, they're in place so that we can monitor vaccine safety, uh, you know, once the vaccines are now being put into the general population. And they help to detect any, any kind of rare reactions that occur um, early on. So for example, the rare cases of myocarditis that were linked to the mRNA vaccine. So they, they are very helpful. But what people need to, um, you know, what people need to really take into account is that we cannot draw conclusions from these reports just on their own. Um, so there are a few things that we need to consider when looking at VAERS or any sort of data coming from VAERS is, number one, I want to say anyone can make reports on VAERS. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. So it means that, you know, whether or not you're an expert, you can go on, you know, on the website and say, well, after my vaccine, I experienced a sore arm or, you know, I had a headache or something like that. And those are fine. But um, there are sometimes people making outlandish, you know, claims on VAERS. So saying things like divorces happened because of vaccination, right? Yeah. So I'm not quite sure how that is very logical. 
But that is just one example of some of the outlandish claims that you would find on the VAERS website, which goes back to the fact that the reports can include incomplete or inaccurate data, right? And they're unverified, which is why if you are not an expert, going to VAERS and looking at the data on your own without having certain expertise is not recommended because you cannot just take that data at face value. Some, there are a few other things is that, you know, people sometimes will say, well, oh, I got the vaccine yesterday. And then, you know, say for example, something unfortunate, like they got into an accident on the next day. Like you cannot, um, you know, causation does not equal correlation, right? Or correlation does not equal causation. Meaning just because one thing happened on one day, it does not mean it caused the next thing to happen on the next day, right? Um, And I think it's really important for people to realize that. And um, a couple other things is that I think a lot of people, we don't recognize the, you know, basically knowing the denominator, quote unquote. So basically, if you're saying 15 people had an allergic reaction to a vaccine. Now, is this something of concern? Well, it depends on how many people have been vaccinated. So if it's 15 out of 15 people, then that's 100%. No, that's not a good thing. But if you're looking at 15 people out of a million people, no, that's a very different situation and scenario. So we have to keep those numbers in mind just to, to, you know, determine what does this actually mean when you go to the VIRS website and look at the data? Like you cannot just trust the data on its own. One thing that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is this notion that the same people put out, which is there hasn't been enough testing. They're using us as guinea pigs for this vaccine. But the same people will say that ivermectin absolutely works for this. And there are studies to prove it. And it's a disconnect that I can't quite wrap my head around. But I'm wondering if ivermectin comes up in your talks in in these town halls that you do, or is that still just an American thing for the most part? Has that come to Canada? Are people trying to use that medicine to treat COVID here? Oh, yes. (laughs) That topic in particular has come up several times. Um, Thankfully, not recently, but in the past, it was coming up quite a bit. Uh, I I think we know typically whatever is happening in the States tends to trickle up over here. I was going to say trickle down over we are north of them. So, yeah, (laughs) but, you know, that kind of information tends to come over here. And so, what I think, you know, is really important for people to understand is. Ivermectin is a broad spectrum antiparasitic agent. So it is included in the WHO essential medicines list for several parasitic diseases. And it's great for what it does and what it has been, um, you know, recommended to be used for what it's, you know, I'll say, quote unquote, uh, labeled for use, right. But what usually happens is, you know, if there are drugs on the market that are you usually have a mechanism in place to deal with, you know, a, vi- a similar type of virus or, or infect or any kind of um, safe bacterial infection, what will happen is that the scientific and medical communities will look into whether or not that medication can be used for a new disease, but they have to undergo a clinical trial for that, right? You can't just take something that is used for one type of disease and use it in another disease area. So these clinical trials are ongoing to determine the potential effectiveness of ivermectin. However, so far, lots of, you know, meta-analysis have been done to determine whether or not ivermectin would actually be effective to treat COVID-19. 
And what we're found, what, what we've, you know, what we've found so far is that it's not, right? It doesn't reduce mortality. It doesn't reduce length of stay in hospital. It doesn't reduce adverse events compared to, you know, control group of people. So researchers basically have concluded that ivermectin is not suitable treatment for COVID-19. One of the things that I'm worried is going to start causing a very strange happening is that the manufacturer of ivermectin, Merck, came out and said, do not use ivermectin, please, for COVID. But now they have created an actual COVID pill, which looks very promising as an actual treatment for COVID-19, that they are allowing other companies around the world to produce for free. They're giving them the recipe for it. Right. Is recipe the right word? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're giving, yeah. The, the, the yeah. Right? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, but it is actually the same company that does manufacture ivermectin. I'm, I'm worried this is going to confuse things when there's an actual really seems to be really good pill uh, to treat COVID for those who were not vaccinated and ended up needing to uh, be treated in a hospital situation. Do you know about that pill? Do you know uh, anything about what it does? Yeah, I actually can't speak too much to that pill, but um, yes, I, I have I have seen that Merck came out with this medication. It does look promising. Um, I believe we're still waiting to see the actual raw data um, out of their clinical trials using this medication. Um, they did release the data uh, by press release, so that I know. And usually, we're just always, um, I guess, we're cautiously optimistic whenever um, a drug com company comes out and gives you know positive reviews and information around their drug um, but it did you know they did say that within the cohort that they studied they saw um, you know significant um, significant protection um, against severe disease with people who use the medication um, as well as protection from hospitalization I believe there was uh, you know uh, people People's um, state did improve. Those who were in hospital and had COVID nineteen, they saw improvement in their state in hospital. Um, but I believe we're still waiting on the raw data to come out, so that you know other regulatory regulatory bodies and independent scientists can look at the information to judge for themselves. All right, that does at least sound promising. So uh, here's hoping it it works. Now I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about the work you're doing, specifically uh, these Zoom calls. Uh, how are they set up? Who are they with? Who are you speaking to? Uh, is it always vaccine skeptics or is it just people who want to sign up and learn a little bit more about what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically the, the calls, we get a range of people. Some people come on because they just want to keep up to date with what's going on, but they're very much on board. They've already gotten their vaccines. They A lot of people were with us from the very beginning and continued to, you know, to attend. Um, and then there are others who come because they're very skeptical. They have a lot of questions, um, which is great because this is what the forum is for. Um, if you have a lot of questions, you know, you join and you ask your questions. And typically we would have um, different experts on the calls. So we try to have um, at least one scientist and, uh, and one clinician on the call. So we may have, you know, a scientist, um, a physician and a pharmacist on the call, which has always been quite useful um, because you get the information from different perspectives. And then there's sometimes we have gotten, um, you know, 
anti-vaxxers on the call um, as well, which, you know, it, it can be very difficult at that point because if they are adamantly against the information that we are sharing, then that's a completely different environment that happens. That doesn't happen very often though. Um, so most frequently it's people who just have questions around their fears and concerns, you know, basically everyone wanting to protect themselves and, and what the issues are or any sort of side effects from vaccines. Um, so those are the types of people that tend to come on the calls. When, when someone, an anti-vaxxer does join the call, are, are you saying that they're joining it basically to push that view on the people in the call to try to discredit those of you who are the experts in the in in that area yeah so like i mentioned thankfully it's only happened perhaps twice um but when it happened um that was that was essentially the agenda right the agenda was to come on the call and and spread misinformation and basically ask us questions um, and continuously move the goalpost. So for example, you know, if they would ask a question on long-term effects and then we answer that question, that question would then be followed up by, oh, but you know, um, X, Y, Z happens, you know, can you prove this? And so they start to ask more and more uh, ridiculous and provable type of questions, you know, that they would like to be answered and basically try to discredit the experts on the call, um, which at, at, you know, at that point in time, it's obvious that they're not open to having uh, an actual conversation, but they're just there to push an anti-vax agenda, which is completely different and not the type of environment that we are trying to foster there, right? Um, so that has happened um, and has, you know, it's never that it, it turns into a little bit of a toxic environment. We try to avoid that from happening for the other callers on the, you know, for the other participants on the call who just are there to, to get the information that they're looking for. I think that it's sort of imperative. And one thing that I think about a lot is making a distinction between the unvaccinated and the anti-vax, right? Definitely. That, you know, there are many people who just are, there's so much confusing information and a whole pile of disinformation. It's a lot to wade through, but you can come on a call like this. You can speak to you and you can speak to other experts and have your questions answered and hopefully your fears assuaged. Uh, the anti-vax, I think, and they hate being called anti-vax because, you know, I have my <laughs> measles vaccine, so I'm not anti-vaccine, but really you're online pushing this, right? It's the evangelical mm -hmm. nature of it where they really try to push it online. You know, our freedoms yeah. are being taken away. Everything yeah. about this is going to kill you and we're all going to die as a result of this vaccine down the road and all this kind of thing. So I think that, yeah, I think that's a very important distinction to make. Is anti-vax even the right word for that sort of the person who's very set in all of the misinformation? Yeah, you know, when it comes to these, I'm not a fan of labels, but I completely, I, I do see and understand why there is a group of people who are called anti-vax, and that's because they are very much against the vaccines. But it's not just that they're against the vaccines, they're also spreading misinformation, and they have an agenda to do so, which is extremely dangerous. Now, that is different from those people who are hesitant, and they still have questions, and they're unvaccinated, but they're not pushing a specific agenda. They have a lot of, you know, really good questions. Some of them are sometimes very difficult to answer because as it is, science is a continuously evolving field. And we are where we are today because of how science moves. Now, if a piece of information comes in and, and it says, oh, you know, like 
I don't know, for example, we initially, I'll give you an example. So for the issue with myocarditis, um, initially, you know, within the scientific and medical communities, what we did is we waited to see what was happening. We couldn't make a rush decision as to whether or not AstraZeneca should be paused or not. Um, after a while though, after getting certain bits of information, you know, that then informs our decision and how things move forward. After that decision, after the additional information came in, then NASI decided that, you know, AstraZeneca shouldn't be used in a specific population because of, um, sorry, no, I'm, I'm talking about um, the myocarditis, but right. uh, yeah, so for myocarditis, you know, certain a certain vaccine shouldn't be used in a certain population because of the potential risk of myocarditis, right? And so that's where that information came from. Um, and this, so it's really important to note the difference. And I think people who are people who are open but very scared and very concerned and very worried would be more open to having that discussion and seeing when we're, you know, we're being open and honest and transparent with them versus someone who is anti-vax, they will immediately jump on any bit of information that seems negative or, you know, against the vaccines or science in general, and try to push that as something to say that, oh, here we go. Look, there, you know, there's another problem with the vaccines, but that is not it, you know, and it come, I think it also comes back to science literacy. Like if you do not understand how science works and you think that everything is 100% certainty, which absolutely nothing is in our lives, we know that. You know, with, with that in mind, they come and they push this agenda that there's an issue with the vaccines. Every small bit, even if it's a headline, they will push it. Even if the actual article doesn't, doesn't is actually favorable to the vaccines, they will right. push the negative part of the headline, right? Um, and so I think that's, the distinction between the two groups of people and for me quite honestly it's quite it's quite sad when I have conversations with people and you know they may not be anti-vax but they are sort of falling into this you know into the narratives that they're being fed by other anti-vaxxers online um, because you know it they are they are, you know, they're fed a lot of fear, they have a lot of mistrust, and then they are putting themselves and their loved ones in danger and at risk because of that. And it's really, really concerning for me, um, because I don't want to see that happen. And when we know better, we want to help others, you know, get this information so they can also do better for themselves. Just popping in with a little correction here. Uh, it's the Pfizer vaccine that's been linked to myocarditis and pericarditis. Uh, two different types of heart inflammations and that's occurred mostly in men and mostly after the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Now the rate's been in the neighborhood of three people per hundred thousand and each time the condition was quickly treatable by medicine and as of the time of this recording no deaths have occurred as a result of vaccine related myocarditis. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been linked to a different condition, a blood clotting condition called thrombosis. Now in that case, it appears to have affected about two out of every 100,000 people who have received the dose, uh, mostly people under the age of 60. So in both cases, it is clear that the risk of COVID is far greater than the risk of vaccine side effects. Now, back to the podcast. It reminds me a lot of the anti-climate change movement the people who are deniers that climate change exists. And a lot of the time they'll point to, you know, a climate study from the 1970s that predicted global cooling. That never happened. Therefore, not only should we never believe science, we should actually believe the opposite of what science tells us, right? 
Right. And, and it's, it's a strange mentality I can't quite wrap my mind around. I am wondering, though, at this time, global pandemic, a mobilization of scientists like we've never seen before to really get together, work on a single issue, find a solution. How much is disinformation affecting the work of those scientists? You mentioned that they were doing actual tests on ivermectin. I presume that's because so many people were pushing it as a miracle cure for COVID that they had to study it to prove that it wasn't, even though it seems like they could have told everyone right from the beginning, this is almost certainly not true. Yeah, so like I mentioned before, typically, like if we if there are, um, you know, medications on the market that are being used for other, you know, diseases, and they are adjacent to the type of, for example, virus, if it's, you know, if it has, if, if, if within the scientific community, we see that there might be potential with this drug to be used for this new this new virus that's causing this new disease, then it's something that will be looked at because it's already there. You know, vaccines in the meantime, lots of um, research and testing will go into new medications and new treatments and vaccines. But we will also look into any sort of, you know, any sort of medication that's already on the market um, to determine if it's effective against, you know, treating, for example, COVID. And so I think it's, it's probably, um, it's been a mix of that. It's just to see, okay, will ivermectin be effective? No. But then also at that point to show people, well, look, it, it is actually not effective. We're not seeing any kind of, um, like I said, there was no kind of improvement uh, when using ivermectin. Um, and so, I think it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but thankfully we do have you know the we do have great I'm blanking we do have the evidence we do have the evidence um, you know to say that no you know ivermectin is not effective and it's not it's not to be used for COVID nineteen because we actually need it to use it for other things right right and so yeah so this this that kind of you know, in, in this particular situation has had some kind of effect when there's so many people that were pushing the use of ivermectin. However, at the same time, you know, the medical and scientific communities cannot divert their energies from doing what needs to be done simply to prove other people wrong, right? right. And so, you know, so that so that is something that, you know, people need to keep in mind when we're doing what we're doing. We also have, regardless of all of the resources we have at hand right now, they're still limited because if we think about it, everything was, you know, shunted towards looking at COVID-19. But at the end of the day, we still have so many other things happening in the world, right? Suddenly, it's not like people with chronic diseases suddenly don't have it anymore. We still need healthcare to continue in those uh, spaces as well. So when, you know, people are, you know, constantly, you know, shouting from the rooftops about Avermectin, it, you know, it, it does start to move our focus a little bit and that's where to be quite frank a lot of people especially science communicators come in really handy right because they're needed to help continuously push that message of accurate science to the people so that they can understand it and those who are in the lab have to continue doing what they're doing in the lab uh, we can't just all divert our attentions just because you know a, a, a small population of people are you know talking about ivermectin Right. And I suppose that one of the real reasons you want to do that is just to prevent people from buying out the pet food store and hurting themselves, which has happened exactly. to a few people. Right? Well, exactly. you know, 
I appreciate that you are a science communicator and that you're doing what you're doing. And I appreciate you doing it with me today. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. To be part of the fight against disinformation online and to amplify the work of scientists, doctors, and others who are spreading the truth about COVID and vaccines, follow Science Up First on social media or go to their website in the show notes of this episode. Many thanks to our returning champion, the always generous with her time, Dr. Krishana Sankar. Part two of this segment will be published next week when I speak with UBC psychiatrist and fellow Science Up First expert, Dr. Tyler Black. Mindful is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.